Tape Talks. The podcast for the recording artist. Brought to you by Klangkantine Studios. Hello and welcome to Tape Talks, to uh, another episode. And with me right here, he's sitting in LA at the moment, is Eric Boulanger. And um, he is a mastering engineer and also he um, is quite into vinyl. We're going to hear a whole lot about this topic in this episode. But first and uh, foremost now, welcome, Eric. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing good. What's the time at your place at the moment? I haven't I forgot to look it up. I was about to say, this is a, an exciting uh, time difference here. It's 11 a.m. and we're experiencing a heat wave over here. And it's already on, and well, in Celsius yesterday, I think it was 44. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Yeah. In parts of LA, it was almost, it was around 115 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So I don't know if I'm doing that math right. Sorry. I'm on the spot. Let's just say bloody hot and we will all understand. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's already hot here. And I even live at the beach, so you know we we have slightly cooler temperatures coming off the ocean, and it's still bloody hot. So, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's 11 a.m. over here, and what that means it's eight something at night, uh, 20 hours by you. Yes, that's correct. And uh, the heat wave is not here anymore, so we. Maybe if you're lucky, you get our cool weather. Congratulations. Yes. I'll try to send it over. <laughs> so, Eric, uh, let me um, say a few introductory words about you. You are founder of The Bakery, which is a mastering studio and a vinyl cutting plant. And uh, you are also an accomplished professional studio violinist. Apart from that, you have worked as a mastering engineer for Green Day, Hosier, Colby Calais, One Republic, Eric Burden, Neil Young, The Doors. And you've been mentored by the one and only legendary Al Schmidt. And also um, you joined the Mastering Lab together with the also very well-known Doug Sachs. So in this talk, I would be more interested in talking with you about vinyl. You built the Mastering Lab's vinyl mastering room. I mean, it was 2009 when you did this. What was the initial spark for that decision to build this? Doug, when he opened the Mastering Lab, really did invent the idea of independent mastering because everything up until that point, the labels had their own studios The engineers, the producers, everyone who worked on a record was all under one roof and they'd mix it and then it go to transfer engineers. And they were termed transfer engineers because they'd typically take it from a tape or something, maybe live, but um, that would be what gets it onto the lacquer for duplication. And it was far less of an art. It was just take it or leave it. It was Doug's original idea with working with Lincoln. You know, they were they were all high school friends. Lincoln got the the record deal, that whole thing. He went down the Hollywood path. Doug, who was um I believe the same age if not maybe a year difference, went off uh into the Seventh Army Symphony. Mm-hmm. 
which would have been just after the Korean War. And as you can imagine, with the temperature of the the military environment, and mind you, the drafts was in effect back then, many talented musicians who were 18 years old would all try out for the various army or navy bands or orchestras because you you weren't on the front lines. <laughs> and so Doug was an incredibly accomplished uh, trumpet player. He, he had studied at UCLA mm-hmm. and um, got into the 7th Army Symphony. When he got out of the army, came back to L.A., met back up with his friend Lincoln Mayorga to do a few recordings at a recording studio strictly because Lincoln had money and it was fun. (laughs) That sounds reasonable. Yeah, and for the first time in their lives, they weren't listening to a tape or a dubbed copy or anything, and what they were listening to was the engineer at the studio, just, it was two mics on a piano, Lincoln messing around and recording straight to a lacquer at 78 RPM. Mm-hmm. When they dropped the needle on that, apparently their jaws hit the ground and because they didn't realize that that could do that. And instantly Doug had the idea. He's like, well, why does everything else sound like crap? <laughs> he's like, we can do this better. And Doug was like, we can make this into a business. And that's when his brother was like, uh, business? Mm-hmm. And so... Which year was that? 19... Well, this would have been 65, 66. The, the Mastering Lab was was founded, established in 1967. In fact, uh, I believe, technically, the first mastering project Doug ever did at the Mastering Lab, uh, from what I remember, would have been December 26th, 1967, because the whole joke was it was right after Christmas and he was the only Jew who would take a job that came out of nowhere. <laughs> oh, really? Because, mind you, you have to realize that they invented mastering. Like, Christmas time was like, oh, I got to get my record mastered. No, that didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. And so somehow something came along the lines and then... You know, not to stick with the Christmas theme, but the the snowball got rolling. And, you know, the Mastering Lab started making a name for itself. And particularly amongst producers who were also going freelance at the time from labels. You know, it was a formative time of uh, just business in the music industry. And, you know, both artists and producers were like, well this sounds better with what this guy is doing. Why would we want anything else? Gave birth to literally the concept of independent mastering, meaning cutting a record not under the roof of a label. Because of that, opened the door for the artistic side of things, which is um, deliberately changing a few things to, to achieve a sound that everyone wants. And we can get into that later. But um, yes. Getting into, now fast-forwarding to 2009, and the only question you have asked me thus far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a good intro to uh, point out that the vinyl is in the DNA of the whole Mastering Lab already. Well, of course, because, I mean, also, when the Mastering Lab opened, it was it was the only game in town. Like, it's it, if you listen to a record, that was the only way. 
And, um, you know, it's been a long lineage since, but in 2009, to answer your question, it, it certainly was not my decision. I mean, I was still a young snot-nosed kid. And How old were you? Give us some detail. 11 years ago, so I guess I would have been 24. Wow, okay. And the fact of the matter was in year 2000, before I started working for him, I started working for Doug in 2007 mm -hmm. for perspective. But uh, in 2000, at the original Hollywood location, um, that's when Doug had taken out all of the lathes and put everything into storage because the vinyl business was just gone. Yeah, there, there were no more vinyl machines in the studio. There just was no work and nothing made sense. So he took everything out, put it in storage. And when that was done, it was taken out in a way as if it was never coming back. So <laughs> wow, it was not pretty is the point. Uh. Um, fast forward, you know, I start working for Doug and already by the time in 2007 that I started working for Doug, which was after my internship at Capitol and, and mentoring with Al. Mm -hmm. And even at that time, like there were certain records that were starting to go out on vinyl. Like the, the whole resurgence, as we would call it, was starting to pick up steam. Mm -hmm. And it just started being almost commonplace that Doug would master an album, and especially the good ones or the bigger label ones. And then the next request would be, Oh, can you make a high res master so we can cut vinyl? Now you can imagine from from Doug's standpoint, I mean, first of all, he puts his heart and soul into mastering the record digitally, and obviously that's why everyone would go to him. But then we're getting asked for a high res and this thing is going to like chop shops across the planet. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by a chop shop is like, you know, vinyl pressing plants that either have popped up or, you know, they're responding to this whole resurgence and they're still around. And, you know, it's kind of a new age vision of what vinyl is. It's, you know, to so many people at the label, they think it's like, oh, we're going to make vinyl. So upload the files just like you do to Spotify <laughs> and then we'll get vinyl records. <laughs> Obviously, we know that has nothing to do with the intricacies and the true difficulty in the art of actually making a record sound good. Yes. And a lot of these plants are very happy to oblige because it's just business. And so we're getting all of, you know, for records that sound absolutely incredible. I mean, hell, on iTunes, which is at that time before I did Mastered for iTunes even... So that was coming off of our DDPs, our CD masters. The point is a compressed from a 4416, like, you know, CD master, an afterthought was sounding better than the vinyl that was coming back from wherever the hell these labels were pressing this. Yeah, so you decided you needed something like that reflected the quality. This was all Doug's idea. In fact, when he said he wants to bring it back. I told him he was crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, he was crazy. He wasn't, the, the idea wasn't crazy. I think I was more in denial that I realized that I would be the one 
who would have to build this. But how did this come along? I mean, you were, like you just said, 24 years old. And um, most of your time that you were alive, actually, vinyl was dead. And what got you digging into this lost art? And also, where did you acquire that knowledge to build like a state-of-the-art vinyl mastering room in that age? I suppose the the one thing you left out from my bio was um, I actually uh, <laughs> changed I changed course in life and I ended up actually getting an electrical engineering degree from Carnegie Mellon just because I enjoyed being in a recording studio and I figured that like I knew music already so I had to do that and trust me I bit off way more than I could chew. You know, I went too far down the lines of electrical engineering. And, uh, I mean, it was just a great experience. I mean, it, it's it's more a testament to, you know, university and, and studies and pushing yourself and realizing, you know, what your capability is. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, uh, certainly that was applicable to what I had to do with the vinyl thing. Um, w with... Getting the vinyl studio at the Mastering Lab back up and going, that was 100% Doug's idea. He wanted to do it and everything. Yeah. I was the young little guru who was fixing and modding everything at the studio anyway. So he's like, yep, <laughs> your job. And you could not have said anything more true um, a second ago when you said that I didn't grow up in the vinyl age. In fact, it was probably one of my favorite moments I even had with Doug. While I was halfway through building the room, I mean, I was pulling all types of hours, sleeping at the studio, all that sort of thing. And I mean, it must have been somewhere around midnight one random day when I was, let's say, 30% of the way through this build. Um, and so, you know, the, the whole room looks like a construction zone and laboratory and just general nightmare but doug randomly comes in at like around midnight to play solitaire so he probably just got into a fight with his wife or something and wanted to <laughs> <laughs> to leave and he comes in he's like what are you doing here i'm like i don't know building your room and he's like <laughs> he was kind of happy to see someone he's like oh let's go upstairs play some pool and have a drink i was like okay you're the boss great and in this process um i forget exactly what he said but i realized that he just wasn't getting it and i was like okay doug you know when you're in like let's say sixth grade so you know for us what's that like around 11 or 12 years old you go out with your friends on like a bike ride and your parents give you a little allowance money and you save it up And you go to the record store to buy music because now that's the cool thing to do. And your parents aren't there to tell you like what you can or can't listen to. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. I'm like, do you know what I bought? And he starts rattling off bands like, and it was ridiculous. He's like, Led Zeppelin. I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, definitely too old and definitely missing the point here. And he kept on at, uh, rattling off more bands and stuff like that. And I was like, No, Doug, I bought a CD. And he's like, no, <laughs> no. I was like, there was not vinyl in the store. I'm like, there was still cassette on the, like, you know, the, the outer perimeter. Like, for us, it was the Sam Goodies, the store. Yeah. Like, the cassette tapes would be, like, on the outside wall of the, the store. 
like lining the perimeter because it was just like if your car didn't have a CD player, that's that was your plan B. But like the entire store was only CDs. <laughs> so how did he react? He nearly dropped his whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Doug, you do realize that you are tasking me with building the f- finest like lathe that's been known to mankind, like resurrecting it, yeah, and cutting records when I still to this day have never bought a vinyl record in my life. And he's like, no. <laughs> that's amazing. I should say that I did beat him at pool that night. That's the first thing. <laughs> Maybe he was confused still. <laughs> I-, I think he was very distracted because... Doug could shoot really well. I think he was just floored by the fact that... You had a different generation. Yeah, like, straight up. I mean, technically, we were two generations apart, but <laughs> he just couldn't believe it. All right. I mean, that's interesting. So that was 2009, and you were just at the wrong spot, at the wrong part of time to be just pushed into it, or the right one. <laughs> I mean, certainly, in retrospect, you know, it, it wasn't exactly an idea that I was necessarily keen on, mm-hmm. but it certainly was right spot in the right time. Um, but, you know, the, the... Yeah, but what's your opinion, if, if I may just drop in right there, um, You said that Doug or whoever or the labels, whatever, you saw the signs in time that this is coming back and people want vinyl records again. And this is a a fact that is still ongoing. I mean, it's a niche, but it's a niche that is thriving in, a, in, in its form. Well, I say this all the time and I can answer that question with 100% confidence. You know, one of these days, maybe people and our industry are going to realize that we're not selling formats. And, you know, so long has always been the case of labels wanting to sell formats. We go from vinyl to cassette to CD to digital, blah, blah, blah. And it's all about that, you know, trying to monetize something and have a product. We're not selling formats. The reason why people are buying music in the first place no matter what the format is, is because what we're selling are experiences. And that experience has had gone absolutely, for lack of a better term, raped of every aspect that made it fun, engaging, community-wise. Like, you'd invite your friends over and everything. Like, I mean, we went from literally box sets and beautiful presentations of vinyl records. Mind you, the only reason why we did that in the first place was you have to fit a damn 12-inch disc <laughs> somehow. I mean, it's big. All the way down into, you know, the era that even I grew up in. I'll admit it. I was one of those high school kids who found Napster, and I was like, this is the second coming of Christ. Like... <laughs> <laughs> You know, I the RAA would be very disappointed with me. <laughs> But at the same extent, you know, the what we were downloading and everything, it was just pure quantity. You barely listened to anything. The MP3s had, were void of even artwork or anything. Like, it was just, it was stripped of the entire experience. And so this carried on even into, you know, 
the budding of the next generation. And should it come as any surprise that the number one demographic of who buys new vinyl these days are teenagers? It's because we stripped the experience down to literally just a speaker cone moving. True. And now what's happening with everything that's going on is it's the pushback on, okay, we got over the whole convenience thing. Now everything's convenient, no matter what you do. Now we want the experience back. That's what's happening. That's what accounts for vinyl coming back. It's not a niche. It's nothing like that. You know, screw the whole sound quality claims and everything. You know, the vast majority of vinyls that's cut even... I mean, it's not like it's coming from a different source or some magical, like, oh, well, you know, we, we cut the, the, the vinyl while we were recording and it didn't go through the mix or anything. It's totally pure. No, it's coming from the same source and the same master, you know? So engineering-wise, it's a generation later even. But the reason why there's this connotation even of superior sound quality, whether or not it's just, there are plenty of situations where yes it comes out superior but you know um before you carry on because i prepared something right here because you said when we finished the last production that we did that went to vinyl as well and we had a longer chat on the phone as well and you said something like that you like to educate artists and engineers about this format because there are so many misconceptions um oh you want to drop in say something there Well, I suppose um, before we go down that road, which I know where you're going, which is important, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, the fact of the matter is before people think that I'm just dogging on the quality of vinyl, which isn't true because it can be an exceptional format, certainly is the best experience. But the main, the main thing I would get people to think about, like as a mental exercise is when you have people who are crazy about vinyl and swearing about, you know, the quality and that being the only reason why vinyl is coming back and every other format is going away. Like that's that's comparing an apple and orange because you have to realize yes. what do you have to do to listen to a new vinyl record? Well, you have to find it. You're either ordering it off the internet and it's being delivered to your house or your <laughs> if stores still exist <laughs> you're going to a store to buy it pick it up and bring it back to your house now most people have these things called jobs so once <laughs> they get out of work and they get this album you're very excited because you figured out how to get it if it were me i'd be going to the store and buying a six pack of beer as well. You show up to your house after work with your six pack and you either have the vinyl from the record store or you show up and the mailman left this nice package with your vinyl record in it. Mm -hmm. You pick it up, you go into your living room. What do you need to play a vinyl record? You need a turntable, which probably yeah. 99% of the time is probably plugged into a receiver And these things called large speakers, not yes. a Bluetooth pill, you know? <laughs> and you have to take care of your vinyl record because if you mess it up, you're 
gonna mess it up. So you take care of it, you take it out of the sleeve, you place it down, you drop it at the start of the record, you take the packaging with you because it's nice and heavy, you pick up that cold beer that you just got and you crack it open, you sit your ass on the couch, and you start reading and looking at all the artwork and all the little things in this package while you're having your beer and listening to this record in your living room on real speakers. Well, my mental ex- exercise for anyone who's listening is, when the hell have you ever done that with an MP3? That's a good one. I'm pretty certain of what the question, uh, the answer is going to be. And so when people say that it's a superior for- uh, sounding format, if you really want to go down this road, is if you go through all of that trouble just to enjoy the record because it's experience-based versus convenience-based, of course it's going to sound better because you're in a listening mode already. You want to listen to something. Whenever you listen to an MP3, I mean, it's typically when people are going jogging before work and thinking about like their report that they have to give to their boss and whether or not they're getting fired and want to commit suicide. Like... <laughs> You can see how there might be a little bit of difference in listenership to one format versus the other. Yeah. But it's because the vinyl record demands, like the experience we want out of music is what the vinyl record's strengths are, are its biggest downfalls. Yes. All of that. You can't play it in the car. You can't go jogging with it. You've got to take care of it. There's no skipping around. Yeah. Hell, you have to get off the couch to flip the side. Like, it, it forces you to have the experience that we wanted in the first place. And it delivers. And that's what everyone's responding to. Yeah. But, I mean, do you think that this concept, actually, that you would just talk about, you know, the experience, the conscious listening experience, do you think that this is kind of a phenomenon that is non-mainstream and just goes to, like... For instance, if I listen to my mom when she refers to situations when she got the new Beatles single or whatever, it was like there was excitement, joy. They, you know, they were meeting up with friends and listening to that record. It was like the thing to happen, right? Now if a new single comes out and you, you're taking a dump on the toilet and you're flipping through your Instagram, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how it happens that's, most of the time. That's right? rather accurate. <laughs> yeah, and so that whole thing... Is this a, a very non-mainstream uh, way of consuming music, or do you think that this consciousness will come back in the mainstream of music consumption? Well, you know, I th my take on it is I think more people have to be aware of where we're at right now and why we're at, and I fully expect that vinyl will be going away for good at some point in the future, whenever it may be, that we figure out that it's more important to have an experience versus selling a format. Because um, the second we figure out how to have that same sort of experience with however you deliver the music mm -hmm. is going to be the final nail in the coffin for vinyl. Because, I mean, why do you want to go through all this crap? The manufacturing, the shipping, <laughs> the, and, you know... Uh, I'm assuming most musician listeners won't even know the, the struggle that we go through in just getting it to the duplication point, because guess what? It's over a hundred years old invention. Like things go wrong all the time. And it's, 
certainly in today's age, like maybe if it was in the 70s, this wasn't a problem because it was expected. Everyone there, there were so many plants, there were so many plating shops, there were so many mastering studios, and it was like, okay, well, we got to do new parts, whatever. It happens. Nowadays, uh, the expectation is that everything goes perfectly and everything goes fast and right on schedule. Mm -hmm. And it's because it, it mimics what you can do with digital, just with the digital release. I mean, the expectation that we have with vinyl is as absurd, if not more, than producing CD, which at least has a manufacturing process to it. Yeah. And it's like, guys, come on. This, this is not like uploading a file. This is manufacturing and copying an analog format that was invented over a hundred years ago. Like as good as we are and as professional as we are, you know, shit's going to happen. Hmm. <laughs> That's true. Like, you know, the humidity might just be a little bit more than expected. My point is, I, I think we need to focus more on delivering that experience because unequivocally, that's what we all want. Yeah. And the day that we can do that in a different technology, different format, will be the day that I will be very happy to stop cutting records. <laughs> all right. That's a good word. And just that we uh, get this done, I have collected a few quotes that I got from the internet And you can either have a longer answer or also simply say, that's BS, or that's right, that's wrong, that's right, that's wrong, because. Are you ready? The first statement, actually, you kind of already took a take on that one, but I'm gonna make it clear again. So the first statement is, vinyl sounds better than digital. Well, yeah, sometimes. It depends on what digital and what vinyl. I mean, first and foremost, a lot of the craze... We already got into the, the main reason why, subjectively, people are going to, of course, prefer vinyl, and that's because you're in a listening mode, it's a better experience. Yeah. But, you know, there, there's few places on Earth where you actually can do things properly. Number one, like at my studio, if you're to compare the test pressing of a record against the high-resolution master that I made specifically for it, that was was feeding the lathe and made that record. You know, engineering-wise, it's not better. It's more like what I was steering. I was steering that ship with that master to yield the best-sounding record. Now, the other facet of that is for the same record, on the release, I might be doing things differently. So it's going to be a subjective choice between people. Does the digital sound better or the vinyl? But they're technically two different masters. And also, very typically, vinyl is done last. You know, you, you don't want to be cutting a million parts or, you know, no one's these days are going to a mastering studio, me doing my work in the EQ, and then taking a reference lacquer home to say, <laughs> yep, that's the sound I want. Yeah. So... Because of that, vinyl is coming um, as the last step. The first thing, the digital uh, references are approved. You know, just the sound, the artistic, what I do to a record is approved. Then we move into the vinyl stuff. And that's taking what I did and formatting it as best, especially if the mixes or whatever coming in were from higher sample rates and whatnot or, you know, high resolution. And I start printing masters that will 
end up feeding the lathe in a way that I think it's going to come out better. So now the other question is, I mean, I'm human too. There's plenty of times where maybe in that process, I'm making things even that much better just because I'm doing it a second time or something like that. So, you know, it's not a fair comparison. The only way you can make that comparison is if you have like, what, one microphone and an A to D and a lathe molted together and recording the same thing and you're A-Bing everything. And I'm pretty sure what people do to make that comment at home are not making that uh, <laughs> experiment. I get it. So, yeah, maybe we could further elaborate that on the second statement, which would be vinyl just sounds more warm. Um, in terms of warm, actually, it's at least the one scientific reason behind all of this. Because it starts with where you're playing it. Literally every single thing to do with a vinyl record is to the demise of the higher frequencies, the top end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're harder to, to recreate. They're moving faster. Mm-hmm. Your needle has to move faster. So the number one source of problem is the turntable you play it on How worn out is that needle or that cartridge? Hmm. If it can't keep up, it's not going to represent those high frequencies as much. But the low frequencies, no problem. Big, nice waves. Mm-hmm. It's like, great. Number two, the vinyl itself. How many times have you played it? Anything you do to wear down that record is going to affect the high frequency more because there's smaller, higher energy waves. So, and literally, if you take care of your record, the only way that your record wears down is literally playing it. It's literally the physical friction of the needle wiping through that groove. And, you know, just like a nail on a chalkboard, uh, sorry for that visual, but, <laughs> you know, every single time, even though it's a very small needle and it's not that much pressure, every time it goes through, it's going to take some little bit of vinyl with it right you know that's even some of the dust that you have to take off of it yeah that's how the vinyl wears down totally natural then on the cutting side is is a dramatic aspect of all of this and the one that's not variable because obviously you can play it on different turntables you can have different copies of vinyl but it only comes from one source and the vast majority of cutting amps and cutting systems don't like to push that top end um, because it, it moves everything into distortion and it's not pleasant. So many styles of, of lathes and cutting amps, the engineers will opt to literally on purpose darken the record just to stay out of that distortion range. And engineeringly, if that's a word, um, make the vinyl sound warm and warm meaning having that lack of brilliance, that lack of top end. Anything past that is just a decision, so that doesn't count. All right. I think we answered that one really nicely. So the next one is, if your record or your master is produced digitally, it doesn't make any sense to make it analog again because it was digital. You read that a lot on the internet. Well, I mean... Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure the same person probably was like, oh, well, 
What, does that person only listen to records that are made from analog tape or have a tape machine in his house? I'm sure he has a CD or will listen to high-res masters came, that came off of tape. Like, that's not even a question. It's just, you know, this is like a puritanical statement where, like, things should remain in its original form when 99.9% .9 of anything that's ever been done never stays in its original form. Um, because you have to get it somewhere as well. And the fact of the matter is, the, the one thing along the lines of puritanical that does kind of aggravate me, I'll give you one um, example, which actually has nothing to do with analog. Um, but uh, very often we have um, pop record gets recorded at 44.1, so the lower sample rates. You know, that's how they produced it, that's how they recorded everything. They made like a hundred tracks. It goes to the mixer. The mixer is using some analog gear or whatever they're doing, but they come up with a mix that's at 96K. Now, a high resolution format. That's what I get. Now, I have to make a 44.1 to go out to the vast majority of distributors, of course. Mm -hmm. But then the label then asks me, oh, would you please supply a high resolution? I won't get into it too much further, but for me, if I'm making a high resolution, I don't care how it comes in. If I'm manipulating it, I might as well print it at the highest that I can, like 192 or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go down that road for this conversation, but you know, very often what we have to do is match what comes in the door because DSPs, the distributors like HD tracks, have notoriously put everything through spectrum analyzers you know, I don't fault them necessarily because especially early on, there were plenty of labels that either on purpose, but mainly out of negligence and not understanding, would upsample CDs to sell on HD tracks. They're like, oh, well, now it's 96, so we're going to send it. And so that made HD tracks have to go and analyze every single thing. They're like, no, sorry, this is upsampled. We can't sell it. You know, that was the original purpose. It's gone a little bit out of hand these days with the high-res things. Uh, because in the instance that I just said, you know, if someone mixes, uh, records everything at 44, and then they mix it at 96, and I even master it at 96, that Spectrum Analyzer, I mean, it's going to look a little bit different. There is there is some stuff up there, but and I don't want to get into the scientific qualms of all of this, but the fact of the matter is it's primarily going to kind of look like it's upsampled. So we've run into problems where um, the high-res distributors don't want to call it that. And to answer the question about this puritanical stuff, the one easy way around all of this bull, just like what we've been asking, if you had credits and artwork and stuff like that, you could just say, hey, it was recorded at 44.1, it was mixed at 96, and then Eric decided to master it at 384 for whatever reason. And that's what you're buying. And you don't have to agree with any of that. You can go on Gear Sluts all you want and bitch at me and make death threats. I don't care <laughs> at all. But the fact of the matter is, like, you wouldn't have to have all this system in place for like double checking things if like you just were able to say what it was. That's it. Mm -hmm. You don't like it? Fine, don't buy it. See what I care. <laughs> Thank you. I have another potentially provoking one, Eric. 
Oh, you're you're good at this. Oh yeah, no, Google is good at this. You don't have to do much to get these quotes. Trust me. Thank God you didn't go on Facebook. <laughs> All right, here we go. Vinyl is not going to go away because it's the closest to the perfect device. Yes, it said device. The perfect device for listening to music. What the hell are they even talking about? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure this person like lives in a fantasy world of steampunk too. Like, <laughs> you know, the the bird wing is the perfect device for going into orbit too. Like, this guy's a f- fucking idiot. <laughs> the the perfect device for recreating music. What you think? There's anything more representative of sound and audio by a disc spinning on a platter, <laughs> being picked up by a needle that's wiggling around and in the early days hitting a diaphragm and going through a horn to amplify like a resonant frequency or electronics like oh yeah that has everything to do with recreating sound perfectly and a point source like i'm sure this guy has really studied the wave equation like none other I'd love to see his math background on this one. Like, vinyl, digital, all of the shit, it's all just different. Like, get over it, people. Yes, everything's different, but the one thing that all these formats and everything has in common is the pursuit of trying to make things perfect. You know, it. I, I had an interesting thought the other day with, uh, I don't know, maybe it was, <laughs> we cracked too many beers open at the studio, but... We were dealing with something that was comparing headphones to loudspeakers, right? Mm-hmm. And in a perfect world, like, if you could have a set of headphones and sit in front of a pair of loudspeakers and somehow magically exactly the same sound waves produced by both would enter your ear canals and your brain would get the exact same signal from either the headphones or the loudspeakers. What's the one thing that's still different about the two? The difference with the loudspeakers is it's also vibrating your nutsack. Like, they're louder, the sound is hitting you, and that has everything to do with how you experience music as well. I mean, actually, the people who listen to music quietly, especially in their car, they must be serial killers. Like, those people are weird. If you don't turn up music that you like and you want to have like a moment, especially when no one's looking and that's not loud, there is something wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's because you feel it. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And so this this whole conversation also was because of like those articles coming out about uh, Elon Musk's like a brain chip, you know? And so we were thinking about, oh, you know, one of these days we're not going to have headphones or loudspeakers. We're going to just have chips that oh, I want to listen to this, and it, like, your brain hears it or whatever. I mean, obviously, we're we're going off on a tangent here, but, like, the other important thing is, if that were the possibility, like, we'd have to trick our brain into thinking we're feeling it, too, because that's the whole experience. Exactly. I, you know, it. I mean, we have the term, it moves you emotionally, and if you take that literally... Yeah, because it literally is moving you, too, like... Yeah. Scientifically. <laughs> I have two, or actually one, which is kind of a little bit more techy. Let's go a little bit into detail, and because I get, 
asked this special question by artists that I'm working with as a producer or mixing engineer a lot. Um, and this is regarding the mastering for vinyl. So there's this statement, vinyl masters need to be mono in low frequencies and vinyls need a special extra mastering, which is apart from the mastering from Wave. Go. Yeah, okay. So very, very simply put, anyone who's reading about this, anyone who's trying to figure this out, anyone who's asking this, am I allowed to curse now? Oh, yeah. You're a cheap-ass motherfucker. <laughs> That's the answer. Anyone who's going through this is because you don't want to spend money on your product. It's very simple. The reason why there's people like us around, like me as a mastering engineer and know how to cut, is this is not your problem. Like, this is what I specialize in. And you know what? Yes, There are times when you have to do that. Yes, these are tools in our handbag. But the thought that you would be preemptively doing this without ever cutting a record in your life? Are you mental? <laughs> no. Don't go to a pressing plant that has like some intern who just figured out how to press the button and is like, it doesn't cut. Uh, you you got to pre pre-do all of this so... You know, you can press your 200 records for $30 and then make this a reflection on the records that inspired you to do this in the first place. No, spend some damn money, hire someone like me who knows what they're doing. And if the mix really does have problems like that, um, I'll give you an, a perfect example in a second. But uh, the the point is, it's also my job to interface with a mixer like Chris, where it's like, hey, we need to do something like this for the vinyl release, and I think it's going to be better if we do this or at least try it. And then you're going to have a professional mixer and a professional mastering engineer pulling this off better than anyone could have ever dreamt. And my example for exactly this is vinyl's Achilles heel. Vinyl's Achilles heel is sibilance. And the reason for it is, for those who are unfamiliar, um, is primarily the RAA curve, which is it's when we cut onto a lacquer in an effort for signal-to-noise ratio, a, a distortion ratio, which I won't talk about, and also saving space, physical space, um, because you have to realize on a vinyl record, the bigger the sound, the bigger the squiggle. And the bigger the squiggle, the more space you take up, right? But you still only have a 12-inch disc, so the more space you take, the less time on the side you'll be able to, to record. So the idea is to take up less space. And won't get into it, Low frequencies take up more space than higher frequencies. So we have this curve uh, that gets into the distortion thing, but constant velocity, which gives uh, yields roughly saving a lot of space on the disc. So what we're doing with this pre-emphasis curve, the RAA curve, which is the standard, roughly at the lowest frequencies, like 20 hertz, you're reducing the level by 20 dB, And when you move all the way up to the highest of frequencies, like let's say 20K, roughly you're boosting by 20 dB. 
So that's a whole 40 dB top to bottom difference. And when you put that record now on your record player, if you ever wondered why you have to use a phono amp, why it's called phono, it's because A, you have to amplify the signal. Yeah, it's kind of like a microphone, but also you have to have the de-emphasis curve. So the inverse of that RAA. So now you're attenuating the top by roughly 20 and you're boosting the bottom by roughly 20 dB. Mm -hmm. And what comes out your line amp to your speakers is now what was put into the cutter in the first place. So the reason why sibilance is a problem is, of course, sibilance only exists in the high frequency area. And uh, now when we're cutting, we're boosting those frequencies like around 7K. I mean, it's around plus 10 maybe more, depending on the system. When uh, you're playing it back, forget the the electronics, that needle on your turntable now, when you put it down on the record, and that high-frequency energy that's very energetic, that's boosted an additional 10, 15 dB because of this curve, that needle has to wiggle 10 dB more. And that's a lot of energy, and that's a lot of speed. And the main thing with the distortion, to put it in layman's turn, is most needles can't keep up with that. Mm -hmm. So it starts bouncing around. It's like throwing a hot dog through a hallway, you know? (laughs) That's a good image. (laughs) Uh, Well, I know this term has been used for another reason. (laughs) So uh, uh, I hope our listeners don't have too much of a stroke. But... um, you know, the fact of the matter is it can't keep up with all of that energy. So the resulting sound is distortion. And the distortion comes on the playback end for the most part. But uh, anyway, sibilance is the Achilles heel. Those S sounds will distort any vinyl record. And on digital, you might not even notice it. I do have one more vinyl question we had this in our last phone call as well. And um, what confused me when I did the first record that got into vinyl, I was also lost in, you know, because there's so many tools that have to be manufactured to do vinyl, right? You have, first of all, the master cut. Then you have the mother, the stampers. Then you have um, the pressing plant as the systems that, you know, and the, the machines that go into all that. You know what I'm talking about. You have so many aspects. I just touched a few, but what do you think, if you could name one or two, which is the most crucial one to the quality of the finished vinyl? Oh, um, well, uh, I promise you it's not me being biased, but it's definitely it's it's the mastering engineer and the, the master cut, unequivocally. Um, I mean, it's the first one. It's what everything's molded from. It's the, the whole... Everything that comes after the original lacquer cut is in an effort to maintain what the original cut did. So, I mean, that part's just obvious. Like, you know, the best plating on the planet and the best pressing plant on the planet would be magically able to create all these molds from this original lacquer and create a vinyl record that, like, molecularly somehow is exactly the same. That's the idea. And in fact, I'll give you, I'll try to make it a short story, but it was another thing that Doug was famous for here in California 
and throughout the United States because being such a new industry, being mastering, one of the big things was um, he got into trouble with the uh, California tax board with sales tax because they were considering since it, it, you know the indus- mastering never existed before him he got into trouble because they were considering what he was doing as a form of manufacturing so you know and with manufacturing you're starting a product so that's when taxes sales tax is supposed to kick in right per unit and his argument was what mastering does it's an artistic service and manufacturing starts the second that lacquer leaves the mastering studio. Everything after mastering will be considered manufacturing because there's no longer an opportunity to add, subtract, or do anything differently with it, right? Like you're just molding the part. We have the capability of changing it. Yeah. So that's why we're a service and after us is manufacturing. You know, you don't hear too many success stories when people go to court, especially when they go against the government and tax boards. But Doug won that case, and it really did was the thing that uh, really separated and started the mastering industry. I mean, A, he invented it, and then B, he goes to bat with that because he was in the position to be the first. And the tax board agreed with him. They're like, yeah. That's not manufacturing. If you can change it, then it's the same thing as every step that came before it. So ever since then, that's why we don't pay, you know, like the record we did together. That's why you're not paying sales tax for what I did, because it's a service. I mean, I don't know if it's different in different countries, but in the United States, service, like, you know, my physical creativity or what I do is non-sales taxable. That's actually a good transition away from vinyl because in the first place, you're a mastering engineer. I mean, it's a big topic, right? And many people have discussed about the myth and the black box and sorcery whatsoever, right? But we don't want to get into that deep. It has been further elaborated by so many people before. But how do you define your job as a mastering engineer? That is so easily answered. And so easily misunderstood, especially if you read geared sluts every single day. But um, <laughs> a mastering engineer, first and foremost, to understand concerning what we do, and especially concerning the people who think it's like black magic or we have fairy dust, right? Because mind you, there's there's been many times completely accomplished mixers and everything and i barely do shit to their mix and they'll call back and be like how the hell did you make it sound like that and i'm like uh you do realize like you've done like everything i changed like a half db off at like 40 or something you know like Mm -hmm. there's been situations like that um but the facts of the matter about fairy dust black magic guess what people doesn't exist us mastering engineers have the exact same tools as any other studio any other engineer an eq is an eq a compressor is a compressor an amp is an amp like a reverb's a reverb there's these are you know our tool bags and this is still physics we have all of it in fact 
Nine times out of ten, I bet you some of the equipment in my studio might be the same of that as someone else. Now, equipment-wise, I will say that as a mastering engineer, we get to be a little bit more specific about the upkeep and detailed interconnections of our stereo gear. Because unlike, let's say, a recording studio or a mixer's studio, we only have two channels. We don't have like 5,000. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's a lot easier to be very detailed about the upkeep and maintenance and everything and how everything goes together when you're only deal- dealing with, let's say, two channels. And, you know, the importance of that also is because, you know, if my left channel for a stereo release were to be compromised, that means literally 50% of an album would be compromised, right? <laughs> Exactly. So, uh, you know, that's also why there's an onus on us to be a little bit more vigilant. But Mm -hmm. in difference to any other studio or a mixer, it's far easier to be vigilant because we're dealing with so less channel pass. Neither here nor there. The point is, the gear is the same. We use the same shit, period. Yeah. Why is it that people think there's black magic and fairy dust? It's because... Everyone doesn't want to believe that it's really this easy. So if in a typical band doing an album, 10-track album, something like that, your stereotypical album, a recording engineer, if there was one working with them the whole time, Mm -hmm. let's say it take them six months to do everything, make all the tracks. And then from there, they send it to a mixer. And to be fair, let's say the mixer takes about a month to mix the entire album and make everything perfect with all the effects and everything and everyone approves. Then it comes to me. I do one of these albums each day. Yeah. And so the black magic and the thing that you're paying for when you're coming to mastering is perspective. And the reason why people don't think that this is even possible, that we must have some like black box machine or something and why people are so surprised when everything sounds so great is it's too simple to comprehend but it's simply perspective that's it when i do one of these a day i'm exposed to so much versus any other step along the way yeah in any other capacity you're focused on things that no one else, including a listener, would be. I'm, you know, the benefit of being a mastering engineer, and actually the f- most fun part is I'm literally, officially the first listener, the first fan of that album. Yeah. And the only thing that differentiates me from, from me and the first person to pick up that album from the store is I can change things. And you have to pay me. (laughs) (laughs) It takes so much pressure off me. I can say this as a producer who very regularly mixes my own production. Then that's already a lot to do and a lot of pressure and a lot of decisions and a lot of, you know, time to get lost along the way, lose your objectivity and your freshness. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to talk about, especially with our musician friends' budgets and whatnot, is specifically in today's distribution and technology and the ease in which that you can get a record out versus, you know, imagine if you made the same record in the 70s. Mm -hmm. 
you'd need amazing investment just to get the records out and into people's hands. Yes. Now, you literally can make a record and a world-class one from your bedroom and distribute it yourself and that's it. So, you know, when it comes to budgets and all of these things, it's, um, I think we've passed the point of any of them making sense. But the biggest point about doing any of this is, you know, specifically if you're mixing or, or for the engineers out there, you know, someone's hired and it's like, oh, do we need mastering? Well, you know, you could say the same of mixing. It's like, well, do we need mixing? Like, where do you draw that line? Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is for everyone, the concept of just doing the best for the project is should be the only focus. And now I fully understand, as does everyone, that money does not grow on trees. Mm-hmm. But the project's that are easiest are the ones that are most realistic. You know, there's, there's many times when people will, for a project that no one wants to do anything with, they'll go to the nth degree. And then there's projects that are absolutely amazing, but they're scared about spending one cent. And, you know, everyone's so scared of calling it the music business. Yeah. You know, every because the weird thing about music is, I swear, it must be something that's in our DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to speak a language. You don't need lyrics. Like, you hear yep. music, every single human being out of the womb, no matter where you're born, immediately can respond to music. Yes. In some way, shape, or form, and even solicit the emotion that comes out of it. Like, that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And because of it, it's very personal to each and every one of us. Like, I mean, the the thing that's really weird about music is, like, you can write a song, you can record it, it can be a hit record, it's your song, it could, you, you could be talking about, you know, your father dying. That's the purpose of the song and the emotion that you mm-hmm. put into recording and everything and you could meet someone from the other side of the planet who doesn't even speak your language, and it could mean something even more to them. Yes. You know? So this is the fire we're playing with, with music. And so I think the reason why people don't like to talk about this being a business is because it denigrates it to a certain extreme, because it's like, oh, well, you know, if you monetize it, then, you know, you're trying to tell me what it means to me because you know i mean literally music is something that's like doesn't matter what it is you hear it it's in your soul and when someone's like oh no i want five bucks you're gonna get offended it's like a human right thing at that point you know yeah that's that's an interesting point you're bringing up and well it's the elephant in the room yeah and the fact of the matter is especially amongst professionals we have to realize this obviously because, I mean, this is how I put food on the table, and I'm lucky enough to do so. Mm-hmm. I love every second. I mean, it's ridiculous, so I'm no one to complain. But at the same extent, the business has to ex- exist or none of this is going to happen. You know, you're not going to have that access mm. to the artists you want to hear. You're not going to have that access to the records and everything. So that... You know, it's, isn't it ironic point, that it has... this is easier than ever actually to access to the artist? But I find it 
more hard to find out what you what what you actually want because everybody's I feel like is screaming at you. Well, and the other thing is, you know, the thing that I think people also forget about is like what you think the artists themselves, uh, you know, like your icons and everything. What you think they're sitting at home, not paying attention to anything else, or not listening to music or or technology themselves, like mm-hmm. the the whole ethos is having an effect on everyone. So that's where the business end of things comes into play. The acceptance of there being a business is it's really important because if you're that jaded about making this a business in the first place, the problem about it, it will affect your music. Not at all. Nothing will affect your music, but what it'll affect is your reach. And, you know, the, the other thing is it's kind of a feedback loop too, is, you know, the more reach you get to have, the more experiences you get to have and the more that goes into your music, it's. I mean, that's just life. It's beautiful. That's what we all live for. So, so you we know, it's, actually um, we we need the uh, ability to make this full time to make it in the way that we want it to be and to be good at it. Is that what you're saying? Well, not exactly that. I think there's just a lot of stigmas with a lot of terms, and particularly because music is this magical thing that. No one can explain why it's in our DNA that we like to make these ultimatums or try to put things on paper. But I mean, for instance, like what you just were saying, what's what's the problem with the guy who makes a record in his bedroom, never mixes it with a professional or masters it, puts it out on the web and he's got a following of 500 people and he's happy with that little bit of income and keeps doing it. And might decide, you know, continue with his gardening job. I don't know. Like, Mm -hmm. that's the beauty of all of this. But at some extent, to take things further involves business. And And the other thing about business is that's just involving other people. So I think a lot of the immediate negative connotivity with terminology or what we we view in this industry of music is the weirdness of music because it's something that's so personal to all of us. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is that we need the business part of it, but in particular, in recorded music, it has gotten quite hard to make a decent earning from it, right? Regarding, you know, you know all the, the debate about Spotify and stuff like that. Do you fear that the whole industry might degrade or change? No, 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 no. But like the thing I'm pointing out with this discussion and I didn't make explicit is when you say that it's becoming harder to make a decent living from recording. You have to realize that that statement, it's neither right nor wrong. It's just right in the middle because what's happened in modern age is now producing and recording records and certainly distributing them is becoming easier and easier every single day. Like, yes. it's nowhere near what it was. Let's go back to, like, the 70s, which was the golden age for vinyl distribution. What, you think if you were in your bedroom and you made a similar record, you'd be able to afford getting time on a pressing plant 
while Pink Floyd's trying to come out. Hmm. And then you think you would be able to go around to stores and stock that in shelves and have people buy it and make a decent living off of it. So the concept of making a decent living off of recording, it's actually a good thing because it's where we've come. But it's bullshit because you have to realize that beforehand, there were only, what, throughout, let's say, the U.S. at any given time in the 70s, any given year, what, 100 artists that would be able to put food on the table because they're selling records. I would very much so argue that right now in 2020, there are tens of thousands who can put a cup of ramen noodles on the table, but <laughs> it, it shifted to the fact that you're talking about it used to be a small club, and that was technically because of the technological division. Now technology has given us this, and so now we've gotten to a point where we've got technology and we're being exposed to artists and people and talent that would have never been exposed to otherwise. Mm -hmm. And even there's, there's a method of monetizing that to the extent that, you know, it could be their only career. So I would bet you if you were to, to analyze the artists of certainly before the internet, like the artists of the vinyl days and their take versus every single artist, even if they make a dollar today or whatever on one song, what's happening now, I would bet you it's gone up. The problem is technology has let it flourish. So there's way more people. And it's evolved literally to the extent that people are annoyed at the fact that you can't make a living from this because it's only a magnifying glass on the fact that there's so much talent out there that would have in no other way, shape, or form ever been found. So it's about cutting through the noise, if you will. Well, it's always been about that, but like the fact of the matter is our signal-to-noise ratio has gone up now, <laughs> right? Because... Lack of gatekeepers... Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, it's a different time. I, I really don't think there's, in terms of the professionals out there, I don't think anything's changed. If anything's changed, I think it's more likely that what most people view as success is being a pop star. That's not success. Sorry. That is success. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that's not the only success. I've worked with plenty of artists most people have never heard of, but they have a like a cult following. And how the hell they got that, I don't know. Hmm. Also don't care. But they're constantly coming in with new records. They sell like none other. And that's all they do. And my point is, I don't think that could exist back in the 70s. That's a really valid point to say that it hasn't got all to waste. But... I mean, I definitely what we can all agree on is it has always been hard to be heard by a broad mass of people. I'm not talking about the option of being heard. I meant being heard and being well known, you know? Sure. I think that's the same in the 70s as it is today. Well, that's that alone is subjective, too, <laughs> just like everything else we've been talking about. But I'm afraid, yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you, you know, the other thing that's... I'm glad I'm speaking on a uh, German podcast too. Like, actually, what one of the most interesting things um, 
I've been noticing too. Uh, okay, so coronavirus aside, maybe <laughs> bad timing with this exact statement, but uh, certainly the German culture of live concerts. I mean, it's like the mecca of bands, especially local bands here in this country. A lot of clients from all over the world. I mean, like Germany, like your culture really values that live concert stage. There are so many tours, like so many of my clients all tour Germany without fail and have great experiences because of it and continue returning. I mean, people that you'd probably never hear of otherwise, but they have great venues, great everything. I mean, it, it... Is that so different from Spain or France or countries like that? Okay, well, obviously, it's no different from touring in any other country, but, like, it definitely from my experience, um, many of my clients, like, Germany is a huge aspect of the only reason why they're touring in Europe in the first place. Hmm. <laughs> Unquestionably. Wow. And it's just, yeah, and it boils down to, like, a cultural thing. And so, you know, obviously, you know, the these are the things that, that are really interesting and especially for American groups touring in Germany and having a following in Germany, a, obviously the internet and technology has played into an effect where they have that following in the first yeah. place. Yeah. And then B like what you think if it was the 1960s that you were going to hop on a flight to Frankfurt and, uh, you know, be there in 10 hours and, sleep in a lie flat bed and wake up and do a concert the next day and, you know, pick up your paycheck and yeah. continue to the next town. No, like you'd be in an unpressure, not pressurized dual turbo prop stopping <laughs> in multiple locations in Canada, Iceland, England, and then finally getting to Germany with your eyes hanging out of your head <laughs> and then having to rent all of your gear because that was too much weight, you know, like... Yeah. So it gotten so much easier, yeah. We have to go towards the end of this episode, but um, I would have, like, a nice last question that's going back to the topic of mastering, especially. So we were talking about the future and how things are evolving so i would like to know what is your take on the question how will mastering evolve i mean we have touched vinyl which you said is kind of a format which quote you were happy with giving it up again until anybody comes up with an opportunity to uh, get the same experience from a different medium unquote you know it's vinyl or it is uh, CD or MP3. It's At the end of the day, it's just like a music that's coming out of two speakers, right? So regarding mastering, well, will this lead us? Is there like a, is everything achieved in the stereo format at some point in history? And uh, if yes, is there the option or do you see the option at some point in time that there will be machines replacing something? We discussed some of the uh, prime things, but... I can answer this question unequivocally with my personal thrill in having become a mastering engineer. And for those listening, I'll have you know that at no point in time in my life did I ever think I would become a mastering engineer. <laughs> 
actually, when I was at Capitol, the one thing I realized with my stay there, we were doing a lot of string sec. Uh, for recording, there were numerous string sections uh, being recorded. Mm-hmm. And that was the day, that <laughs> the time I really realized that there was no way in hell I wanted to be a recording engineer anymore. Because, you know, the, the fun part about recording for me is it's all in the setup. You know, mm-hmm. you, you set something up and you get that sound. I mean, I still love that aspect of it. But then once the musicians come in, you sit in the control room, you're just pressing record. And particularly when now all these great string sections were coming in to record on whatever I was experiencing at, at the time, I was there literally the one pressing record on Pro Tools and wanting to hang myself because I was like, I'd rather be in the other room right now. <laughs> like all the fun's gone. And then, you know, I became closer with Al. Al was mentoring me and, um, you know, I was sitting in on his mixes with both he and Steve Genowick and mixing unequivocally for, for engineering is the most creative part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. It's where you can do the most and certainly the most fun. True. And the other thing about it was I didn't have to look at a string section <laughs> and wish I was there. So in my head, I was always going to be a mixer. Um, the way I got into mastering was quite simply, I finished up school, I moved back out to L.A., and then I really need a real job, you know, that paid, not an internship. And so Al was helping me with that. Yeah. And in in doing so, um, Doug Sachs was looking for an assistant. Of course, Al sending everything to him. He knew about this. And he's like, Eric, call Doug Sachs right now. I called him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, come up and interview. I mean, it was literally the same day. And very simply, when Al Schmidt tells you to go see Doug Sachs and Doug Sachs picks up the phone and says, come interview with me. If you're not getting in a car, then you should just quit. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I did. He hired me on the spot, and I thought to myself, I'm like, well, I guess I'm mastering now. <laughs> One additional question on that spot. I mean, actually, I haven't heard of a mastering engineer who haven't gone through at least most, if not all, of the stations like recording and mixing before he went to mastering and there's the word master in the word of mastering do you think it's 100 necessary that you do that to get a good mastering engineer to know how it is to record to be a musician and to uh to do a mix um and my form of answering is i know plenty of people who have not gone through that route they've gone straight to just doing mastering okay and And a number of those who have been unsuccessful, I don't know if this is a statement or not. <laughs> for me personally, <laughs> for me personally, I could not be the mastering engineer I am without my experience. And number one of which is being a musician. Mm-hmm. Number one. And that's kind of like what we were talking about. Me saying us being called engineers is stupid. Like, We're not engineers, we're musicians, yeah. and, that's, and that's the crazy part. And it's with technology and, you know, a lot of a lot of programs and everything, it, it, I feel like it's a little bit disingenuous to, to promise that, oh, if you learn this software or something, you can be in the music industry and be an engineer. It's like, no, like, the reason why you're here is because you're a musician and you get it. 
And like, you know, the, the point is the same feeling I get with, you know, if I'm about to play something and plant a note on my violin, I'm about to play and about to put my bow down on the string and produce a note, that same feeling that's like that electricity going through my arm into my hand, into my finger, right before you play with that downbeat is the same exact feeling when I turn around and I flip a switch, a knob on my console, because I want to change the sound of what's coming out of my speakers. Yes. And so for me personally, I could not be doing what I'm doing without my musical background, period. Yeah. Is that the same for everyone? Obviously not, because there are many colleagues of mine who have nowhere near that experience who I respect highly. So I'm not about to go down that line Mm -hmm. of how you should go about doing something. But even those colleagues who I respect and do that type of work, they speak in music. Maybe just as a, as a last statement, but is everything achieved in the stereo format sonically, or will there be at a certain point in the near future? In terms of mastering, I'm not talking about music genres or anything, right? It's just like in the terms of technology and... Oh, well, th- this is how I went down this line with what's exciting about being a mastering engineer. Mm-hmm. And I went down the line of how I didn't expect to be. But the exciting part about being a mastering engineer is our other point is being always on the precipice of pushing everything forward. And that's my favorite part about being able to be a prominent mastering engineer and work with companies like Apple, Mm -hmm. like when we did Master for iTunes, that's one big example, and uh, numerous others and going into the future. Um, To answer your questions directly about stereo versus anything else, right now, I, I mean, this is strictly from an engineering side, we only have two ears, right? So mathematically and engineering wise like there's got to be a way that we can trick the ears into anything that we would experience any other way i mean that's that's obvious Mm -hmm. so the fact of multi-channel formats and whatnot you know in 200 years are those going to be around if you wanted me to take a bet i'd say no (laughs) Because we're probably going to be doing, like, implants and shit like that. But, you know, the the fact of the matter is, with the formats we have, the beauty of being a mastering engineer is being able to steer the ship with our perspective, with anything going forward. And, you know, I'll leave this with one of the greatest misconceptions, specifically revolving around surround and... They'll have a visitor and they're like, oh, sit here in the center. It's the sweet spot. (laughs) Everyone's like, oh, you've got to set everything up right. Like you have to be a rich person with like setting up your surround system with some like fucking AV company that charges five million dollars a second. Yeah. To put in shitty speakers in your walls, but it looks cool. And you're like, oh, I'm rich and this must be the best. And everything's about sitting in the sweet spot when you're listening to the surround record. And the fallacy here is, guess what, people? When you listen to stereo, (laughs) 
you also have to sit in the sweet spot. <laughs> like that does not change whatsoever. And so what? why is the reason between those things? And it's because it's all a facet of marketing hype and whatnot. And we really didn't get into the format artistically. Like the whole idea of surround was effect work. It's an echo from the movies. And when even when albums were done just for surround, I mean, first of all, the vast majority of any surround record, it's all a live concert. You've got everything that you would have done in stereo, and then they put up two shitty mics in the back of a stadium, and that's your rear channels. Like, that's the majority of anything that's been released in surround. And you wonder why people are scratching their head about why they invested in it. And getting back to stereo, with stereo, to listen to the mix, even on your home system, you should set up your left and right channels correctly, and you should be in the quote-unquote sweet spot to listen to that accurately. There's no difference between that and surround, but there's the stigma. Mm -hmm. And the reason why no one thinks about that is because stereo's been around for so long, we've gotten so good at mixing things mm -hmm. and balancing shit that when someone sets up a stereo system in their house, completely wrong... They like they have one speaker in the kitchen and one speaker in the frat house and everyone's drinking beer and they blast it. It still sounds great. But with surround, everyone thinks it's like this effect thing. So they try to make things fly around your head and all of this crap that no one's interested in. Yeah. Because you can't just play that record in the frat house the same. Yeah. If you mixed it, with that same connotation. Like, you should be able to take all six speakers of a 5-1 set, set up and a good mix if you threw all six speakers into the DJ booth of a frat house and they crank the volume, whatever the hell hits all the people playing beer pong should sound like a solid mix. And you know you could do it with a stereo mix, but you know you couldn't do it with a surround because everyone's too concerned about making it sound like something spectacular. And, you know, the fact of the matter is I wish the mixes would view surround not as an ability to throw music around your head like an effect because no one cares about that. Mm -hmm. They want to be emotionally touched by the music and the level. If you're using a surround format, the number one benefit that you have is you have four more channels you literally have four more channels of headroom so you know the the proverbial pop song everyone lives for verse two right it's after the first chorus and it's where all the instruments are in everything's subtle the vocals really <laughs> out front it sounds great and you want to make it really loud but like you have to pull it back because oh shit course course number two is coming up and if we make verse two sound too big, then when chorus two hits, it'll sound tiny because it's like fitting a size 12 foot in a size 10 shoe. And so that's like what we manipulate as mastering engineers with level. But with surround sound, you could use two speakers and you could have that verse as big as you wanted. And then when that chorus comes, guess what? You have four more. I wish more mixers would 
used the extra speakers as headroom <laughs> as a concept versus, oh, there's the hi-hat behind my head to the right. whoop do fucking do <laughs> Eric, thank you so much. I think this is a good closing sentence for this episode. First and foremost, I want to thank you about uh, the tremendous amount of time that you took to record this with us on this very hot day in L.A. Well, thank you so much, Chris, uh, for having me. This was a real treat. And on a hot day, I'd rather do nothing else. But uh, <laughs> definitely appreciate the time. And um, I hope anyone who's listening out there gets the most out of this. And uh If any of you are in L.A., please feel free to, to contact us and, um, you know, hopefully post-COVID, too, all, yeah. all of this craziness when we're all able to travel. I'd love nothing more than people to reach out and us to, to make connections and whatnot. So uh, great opportunity, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for being able to get to work with Chris just before this podcast on an album yeah and um so thank you so much thank you eric tape talks the podcast for the recording artist brought to you by klangkantine studios